we're all students of life. And all throughout our lives, we have different teachers. And when you start out young, you don't really get to pick who your teachers are. You're just born into who those teachers are. Your parents, your aunts, uncles, maybe your siblings, they all teach you. I see the way my son Evan is learning things from Isaiah. And it goes the other direction too. I see the way Isaiah learns things from Evan. In the, in the form, in a way, they're teaching one another. And all throughout life, we have people who teach us, who uh, not just pass on information, but actually contribute to our formation and to the kinds of people that we become. And as we grow up, you know, we start to choose who will be the people we keep company with. And those people often teach us and form us. You know, and as that continues to happen, you probably once you get into like your late teens, early 20s, you start to evaluate, do I love the teachers I've had? Right? At that point, you've already hopefully finished high school, and you're thinking through, you know, like, okay, if I go to a post-secondary, I want to try to pick the profs I have. I have to think about some of the people I'm hanging out with. Are they helping me move in whatever direction I want? And so all these different people, they form us, they teach us. And that question of who do I want to keep company with, who is it that I want to learn from, who is it that I want to form me, is a question that Jesus asks us as well. See, the question in life is not, are you going to be a student? But whose student will you be? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he gives us this description of what it looks like when people become students of Jesus. When they live as he calls them to live. It's this picture of the kingdom of heaven on earth with Jesus as king. And when he concludes this sermon... He begins to outline a number of calls and warnings. And that's where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. We're near the end in Matthew chapter 7. And the call that he, we're going to read today is this call to choose between two different paths, two different ways. One where he's the king of life and the other where he isn't. And so let's read that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Father in heaven, we confess that when we hear these words, they feel heavy and stark. And for some of us, it even feels hard to square with what we feel we know about who Jesus is. And so we ask that because this is what Jesus says, you would give us ears to hear and a heart to respond. We ask this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. The call to enter the narrow gate is a summons to enter the kingdom of heaven by radically committing to Jesus and his way. When he says, enter the narrow gate, he is saying, come into the kingdom of heaven. You can enter into it, and it ha comes through me. See, Jesus wants you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what all of his teaching has been on, on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in the ancient world, gates were the entrances to cities or temples. Today, if you go to the city, the, old, the city of Jerusalem and you try to enter the old city, you can enter through a number of different gates. There's a picture of uh, Damascus Gate. And you can enter right through there. Even you, when you read Acts 3, Peter and John are walking through, we're told, the beautiful gate to enter into the temple. You had to enter through gates in order to have access to a city or to a temple. But gates were also used in a metaphorical sense, too, to refer to entrance into a state of being. And in this life, you can pick which gate you can enter into, you will enter into. And you have these two choices, Jesus says, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate, where the way is narrow and challenging, or the wide gate, where the way or pathway will be broad. And the stakes, Jesus says, are really high, with one leading to the fullness of life and the other leading to destruction. It feels really stark. It doesn't actually square with the way that we like to think about life. So how does this work? And what's he talking about here? Well, if it isn't obvious, his language that he uses is poetic, but it's also figurative and it's true. And the wide gate is life without loyalty and reference to him. In this way, you are the ultimate judge. There is no other judge that can decide for you what is good and true. You are. The broad gate is language for doing as you please, as you want. It's doing whatever I want to do. It's saying, you do you. We use that kind of language. You do you. You speak your own truth. You live by your own truth. The broad gate is embracing selfish urges to act for our own benefit, even if it hurts others. The wide gate is this deceiving ourselves to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. And as you enter that gate, the way, we're told, is broad or easy, depending on your translation. Jesus says, wide is the gate, and broad is the road, and many enter through it. And the Greek word that we have translated as road in the NIV, or way in the ESV, is hodos. Hodos refers literally to a way, or a road, or a highway. And in the ESV, it renders this passage, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. Hodos is used also as a way to speak metaphorically of an entire way of life, a pattern, a set of behaviors or an ethical system. It's kind of like if you're a fan of the Mandalorian, you know that Mando and some of his friends will say, this is the way. Right? They're talking about their, and captures all of their way of life. And this is how they end uh, their, their conversations. This is the way. See, the way, though, is this more of a, uh, than just a path. It can refer to this way of being, a way of life. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, you'll find this word hodos more than 800 times. There's just constant reference of way. The broad and easy way is often the path of least resistance. And Jesus' declaration about this easy way is that it ultimately leads to ruin, to death, to destruction. It doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to flourishing. Death is the end result of choosing to enter through the wide gate and take the easy way. And he highlights this other gate, the narrow gate. The narrow gate is a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
It's not a physical gate, and it, it's not him referring to doctrinal correctness. There's lots of people who have really uh, solid doctrine, but they are full of bitterness and malice. They're not kind. They're irritable. They don't demonstrate the love of Jesus, but you could say they have proper belief. No, Jesus is the narrow gate. If you have any doubt about Jesus being the gate, and you read, you, you could go to the Gospel of John, and you'll read it there where he says, in John 10, I am the gate, Jesus says. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Enter through me, says Jesus. Enter through me. Jesus is the narrow gate. And he's saying here, enter into the kingdom. And to do that, you enter through me. Salvation and life in the kingdom are tied together in Jesus. And he says the narrow road leads to life. Or the, the way is hard that leads to life. The way of life that Jesus is talking about here is one that lives in reference to him and is loyal to him. This is what the Sermon on the Mount and then his life shows us is that his way, his way of life, this ethical vision, this way of being and relating to others, they ultimately lead to life, to flourishing, to the fullness of life. Jesus says, I didn't come to steal your joy, to take your life. I came so that you could experience the fullness of my life and the fullness of my joy. And that's what the kingdom is about. So come and follow me. Enter the kingdom. Now, if you haven't been reading the Sermon on the Mount or with us in the series, this might actually sound really strange because you're like, how do you get from enter the narrow gate and avoid the wide gate to what you're talking about here with the kingdom and Jesus? And I don't assume that you would just take me at your word. But the reason you can take that, take, uh, that interpretation is because if you read through the, the Gospel of Matthew, you can see that this is what Jesus has been hitting on throughout the gospel. If you read the preceding chapters right before the Sermon on the Mount, you see that this is what Jesus has been preparing you for. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, from, uh, we're told, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, which means turn around, think again, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then two verses after that, in verse 19, where Jesus says, come, Follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And then, just a few lines after that, begins chapter 5, which is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he, be, he goes up on this mountain, sits down, and begins teaching his disciples. And what's his first line? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is this powerful description of what the kingdom of heaven is like, and more specifically, these vivid, vivid portraits of what happens when you repent and believe the good news of Jesus, that he really is bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. He's effectively then saying in our passage today, because of me, heaven is invading earth, and this is what it looks like. Come and enter in. And what does it look like? Well, we've gone in that picture. The poor in spirit enter into the kingdom. They receive it. The grieving are comforted. Those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to God and others 
are filled, they're satisfied. Peacemakers get called children of God. The insulted and reviled, because they've identified with Jesus, are also recipients of the kingdom. People in the kingdom of God are zealously committed to their spouse. Their marriage is not a short-term thing. It's not a thing for convenience. It's not something you dispose of when you're no longer interested in the other person. They're committed. People make every effort to reconcile with one another when they've, been, when they've wronged them. People are honest. They're not manipulative or deceptive. Jesus says that people are motivated by an audience of one, not by how other people will see them. They don't live for their image. People are generous with, they, with what they have. They hold the, their stuff with an open hand. They reject materialism. They stop judging other people. They love and pray for their enemies. They prioritize the kingdom of heaven and being rightly related with God and others over all other things. And they live in this confidence that their heavenly Father loves to provide for them. This is what the life in the kingdom of heaven looks like, and it's available now. And who doesn't want this? When you hear it like that, you're like, that sounds really good. I want to remind me some of that. And now, as we come to the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends it, or begins to end it, and says, decide whether or not you will enter into the kingdom through me. There is no other entry point. I am the gate. There's two gates. Reject me, and it ultimately will lead to death. And if you choose me, it will cost you. It will feel like you're in over your head, like you can't do it. It will feel like it is impossible. You will feel stretched in ways you've never imagined you could be. You will have to trust me with your life over and over and over again. And yet in doing so, you will discover the meaning of life. You will experience life as it was meant to be, and you will have life with me. Now, I know when you heard this passage, and even as I outline and try to make sense of it, there's a part of you that's like, really, Jesus? Just two ways. That's it? That's like incredibly simple. Narrow-minded, you could say. I mean, I know of, you know of, so many other belief systems, other ways of living. How can he just say there's just two? And when you boil it down, it's because although there are definitely some ways that are more admirable, have more admirable qualities and better than others, at the end of the day, they all miss the mark. They all miss the mark of what God intended for humanity. He's not saying that there is no scale, that some ways are better than others. He's just saying that when you boil it down, anything apart from entering the gate through Jesus is missing the mark. Some certainly do less damage. Some actually do good things, but they miss the mark. The mark is life with God. That's why he's saying there's just these two. All the other ones, they fall into that camp of missing the mark. And he's not offering you when he teaches a set of suggestions, a set of life hacks, a set of good ideas for how you can live or a series of, you know, things that will just help you. He's not even a philosophy of life among a multitude of others. Jesus is making an exclusive claim, and that's what's offensive. He's making an exclusive claim that he himself and his way are the way to life. That all other ways, when you compare them to what God actually intended for life, are not fully living. 
Not that you're not alive, just that you're not experiencing the life that he intended. And so I get it. Like, this runs so far against our culture, the way that we communicate, the way that we're supposed to think, the way that we're supposed to talk with other people. And yet, this is what Jesus is outlining. This is, I'm just trying to make sense of it and live in the tension of it. But this is what he says. And it's not just here that we come across this. In the Gospel of John, again, Jesus will say, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Jesus says this to Thomas because Jesus had just told his disciples, look, I'm going ahead. I'm going to prepare a place for you guys, and I'll come back and get you. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you guys. And Thomas is like, but Jesus, we have no idea how to get there. How are we going to get there? How will we find this place? And Jesus says, you know the way. And then he explains, I am the way. The way to this place that I'm preparing for you is through me. It's with me. Enter the gate. Attach yourself to me. Abide in me. Choose me. Follow me. Like how many different ways will Jesus say it? It's getting at the same idea. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this idea that life is found solely in God and his way isn't something new. God always desired for humanity to grow in their knowledge and in life through relationship to him and over time. Trusting him, listening to him, and following him. And you don't have to go very far in the Bible to see that theme come up over and over again. If you go to the very first few pages of the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, humanity is created in God's image. They are given a choice between two different trees. One is about life and dependence with God, and the other is about doing life on our own, in our own power, in our own wisdom. And this one guy I read, he talked about how it's like choosing that tree of the of the knowledge of good and evil. It's shortcutting this relationship with God for knowledge. Two different ways. Choose which way you will live. In relationship with me, in reference to me, or apart from me. Humanity's first representatives, they chose their own way, and it leads to death. It's not that much of a stretch to see what Jesus is getting at here. Proverbs 14, 12 will write, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. When humanity sees that apple, and that, or the, we're not even told it's an apple, it's just how we like to describe it. That fruit there on the tree, it looked pleasing to the eyes. It looked right, but it didn't lead to being rightly related to God or to others. And in the end, the, Adam and Eve end up just blaming each other for their failures. If you keep going in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 28, God has rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he's establishing this relationship with them, this covenant with them. And he, he says to them, look, there is a way I've redeemed you, and if we're going to relate to one another correctly, there's a way of life I have for you. And if you live in relationship with me, it leads to flourishing. It's not that every single thing will go your way, but it leads to flourishing. But life apart with, from me, without reference to me, ultimately will lead to death, to slavery, 
And you see that happen with Israel's exile. And this isn't because God loves to punish, but because they're going against the grain of life, the way life was designed to be. Joshua 24, when Joshua and the Israelites have come into the promised land, at the end of that book, Joshua calls the Israelites to remember who God is, what he has done for them, the way of life he's called to them to, and then he says, choose for yourselves who you will serve. The Lord who rescued you out of slavery or the gods of your ancestors. And he says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There's this call to make a choice. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the step with the wicked or stands in, in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which, whose, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Over and over and over again, we're given these two pathways, two different ways we can choose. One leads to the fullness of life. The other doesn't. There's two pathways, but you and I were only made for one. All the other pathways miss the mark. We were made for life with God. He's the author of life. And Jesus comes, and he is God with skin on, and stands before us and says, come and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Come and enter into the life that you were created and now going to be redeemed for. God comes to us as Jesus and lives with us and shows us the way to live. Now still, some of you hear this and like, it's just, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't jive with everything that like, feels important to me, this tension, these two different ways, and it seems so extreme. Why would Jesus do this? Why do, why do we see this even throughout the Bible? Is he, is he saying then that all these other ways are horrible and evil in every single way? No. They just miss the mark. There can still be good things in them. One of the reasons why is, is if you're into literature or, or philosophy, you know this term rhetoric. It's a rhetorical way of speaking to get people to understand the significance of what is going on. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to show us the way and be the way for us to God, the Father. But we need to choose that. He doesn't do it for us. He's, he's inviting us to make a decision. And that's a decision which you and I will be held accountable for. You and I, and that's what Jesus is doing with these two different options here, is he's making us aware that we're ultimately going to be held accountable for the life that we live, for the choices that we make. And we don't all get the same set of cards dealt to us in life. We all start off in different places. It doesn't mean that we don't get held accountable, though, for the decisions that we make for who we choose to identify with, for the path we choose to take. You'll have to give an answer. Who will you choose to be loyal to? Who will you choose to serve? Who will you choose to worship? It's not a question of whether or not you're going to serve in life. It's just a question of who you will serve. It's not a question of whether you'll worship in life. Human beings always worship. We worship the things that our hearts desire the most. 
a person, a relationship, or this possession, a job, the thing we give the most attention to in your life, that's what you're worshiping. The item or outcome that you have set all your hopes on is the thing you worship. The outcome that determines whether or not we're joyful is the thing we worship. It's not about whether we'll worship. It's just about who we will worship. And what Jesus is getting at is that all of us will give an account for the life we've personally lived. Which gate will you enter? Which gate will you enter? So what then do we do with this? How do we take what Jesus is saying and if we have ears to hear, hear it as an invitation and not a threat. Well, one, I think we need to make a daily and radical devotion to Jesus Christ. Daily, because even if you identify as a follower of Jesus, every day we're invited to enter that gate. Every day we have to make the decision, will I follow this isn't just for the people who maybe don't know Jesus. This is for those of us who say, yeah, I am a Christian. I identify with Jesus. I want to follow him. Every day we have to make that decision. In each moment, we're called to make the decision. And sometimes we don't. We're like, actually, I don't want to take that path right now. I'll take the wide one. Least resistance. It's easier. I don't want to have to forgive. I don't want to have to reconcile. I don't want to have to be generous in this moment. I don't want to have to trust you with this relationship. I don't want to have to trust you with my future, so I'm actually not going to bring my future to you right now, Lord. Every day, in all these different areas of our lives, we have to do that. I don't want to uh, release my finances to you, Lord. So I'm not going to let you into that area. And what he's saying is, every day, in all areas of your life, you need to enter the gate. Take the road, the way that is hard. See, devotion to Jesus must resist selfishness. And when you choose to be devoted to him, you choose to be with him. One of the temptations that Christians are often pulled into is this idea, oh, I could just do the things that Christians are supposed to do, but I'm never with Jesus. I don't spend time with him. And that's like, it's like making Jesus and his way like completely impersonal. Depersonalizing it, completely removing Jesus from his way. You cannot do that. That's not how discipleship works. It's not a philosophy. So you devote yourself to the person of Jesus. Dallas Willard says, if I am a disciple, that means I am with him to learn from him how to be like him with him, to learn from him, to be like him. People who love to be with Jesus over time, over a lifetime, become like him. It's what happens when you keep company with him. And we have to learn how to make every moment of our life a moment where we recognize that he is present and with us. To worship him with thoughts, our thoughts, our actions, our words, to direct our attention to him, our situations. That's what worship does. 
when we come and gather on Sundays. We direct our attention off of ourselves, off of our own situations for a moment, and direct our attention onto Him. It's not that we ignore the world and don't care about the world. It's that by gazing on Him, we see who He is and what He's do, done and doing. And it gives us the ability to look around and see everything else in its proper perspective. Be with Him. Worshiping is this counterformational thing in our lives. Counterformational in that our world, our culture doesn't want to form us. It's not trying to form us into the way of Jesus, into people who look like Jesus. So we can't expect that. But when we worship, we are being reformed into people who reflect God, who are like Jesus. And one of the things you can ask yourself is, Jesus, you are Lord. How can I be with you today? That's where things, practices like silence are so difficult, but can be so fruitful in being present to him. Spending time in scripture, asking him to speak and instruct you. In prayer, telling him how much you need him to lead you in this relationship, in your marriage, in your job, at home with your family, with this coworker or friend. Journaling and writing out prayers. I know for some people it helps them just stay focused. It helps them express that and articulate that. All of these are different ways we can be with him. We can respond to that call, that summons to enter the narrow gate and take his way through a radical devotion to him. Secondly, I think we can make this commitment or move towards a daily and radical commitment to his narrow way. This is doing what he says. This is a conviction within you that his way is the way for you. That it is a good way. And I've included narrow here, not just because Jesus says it, but because it really is. It's narrow because Jesus demands you become apprentice of him. Jesus demands you repent and you rethink your own ways. That is not easy. It's not, an, it's not something that just feels like it's going to come to us easily all the time. His way is narrow because it demands you begin to do the will of the Father as he outlines in his life and in his teachings and so clearly here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's narrow because it demands you prioritize the kingdom of God in your life and you be rightly related to him and others over all other things. It's narrow because Following Jesus means learning to love God and love others, including your enemies, and treating others the way you want to be treated. It's narrow because it feels impossible. It doesn't just feel like, you know, a, a narrow walkway. It feels like a tightrope for some of us. You're like, I can't do that. Only people who have trained, who are experts, can do that, walk across that tightrope. It's narrow because it feels impossible when you do it in your own power. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, As long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and try to walk in it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me, step by step, 
If I look only at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. See, the way of Jesus is about obeying Jesus. And obedience reveals who's in charge of your life. It reveals who you're trusting. Obeying him says you believe he really is the smartest being in all of the universe. And he knows how life goes together. You believe he's good, and he'll provide what's needed. You following him is proof that you trust him. And Jesus embodies this. Jesus embodies this trust in God the Father. Jesus says, I only do the will of the Father. He doesn't call us to do something he hasn't done himself. He preaches what he practices. See, more than Christians who are celebrities or really well-known, who have a, a massive platform. We need regular people who are committed to following Jesus in his life and, uh, and his way in all areas of life, who go to work and work a nine-to-five, and they're committed to him and his way. And then when a moment they encounter at work, in their home, amongst their neighbors, where they are actually having to step out and follow what Jesus says, that becomes this moment of witness. And it doesn't even mean a conversation is opened up. It just means that you've witnessed and shown what Jesus is like. We need people to live like that. To not look at their jobs purely as just a way to get money, but actually an act of worship to God. One thing you can do this week in committing yourself to his way is to reread the Sermon on the Mount. Read it with the thought that Jesus practiced this and he believes you can too. It's scary. It's scary to do it when you read it and you're like, ah, Jesus, I don't know if that's really for me. I think that one was just for you. I don't know if that one was for Alex, but not for me. That was for Ron. I think that was for my parents, but not for me. Go through the list of the different people you'll name who you are. They're better suited for this. The thing is, you never look more like Jesus than when you say yes to him. And when you seek to live dependent on God's power, he shows up. I remember um, <clears throat> the, the first year I went on a mission trip. I went to a place I didn't want to go to. I went out of obedience. It ended up being Mexico. And, um, you know, when you're on, if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, you know, you kind of get up for it. You're like, wow, there's so many different things we've got to do. We've got to work hard. We're going to work as a team. Uh, we've got to pray together. There's a lot of things that are um, structures that are put in your time there that make it feel meaningful. You pray together in the mornings, and you maybe have a group that you pray with at night. You know, you're serving one another. There's devotionals. There's all these different things that make it feel like, wow, like this is beautiful. I love this. It's also really challenging to be around people all the time, and you have to have really good conflict resolution skills. But one of the things that you'll have happen there is like you, you start to count down the days. I remember after having spent this time in the Copper Canyon and I had a shower for a few days and having hiked for several hours, I was like, oh, I'm so looking forward to food I like, and uh, a shower. And I was so tired, uh, I remember we got in, the, we, we were deep into this can canyon area, like three hours of off-roading, and 
we all get in the cars, and they had warned us, hey, it's been raining a lot. We might get stuck. So don't relax too much. Keep your shoes on. I was like, I am tired. I took off my shoes, and I went to sleep. And within like three minutes, we got stuck. And we were like a convoy of four different vehicles, like uh, SUVs and like one larger truck. And all four of us got stuck in different places. And to say I was disappointed would be an understatement. Uh, those of you who know me well know uh, I am slow moving in the mornings. My brain takes time to uh, wake up. Like 11.30 is a good time for me. And so um, I woke up cranky, irritable, and now I have to get out and try to push these vehicles out. And if you've ever been, you know, like, work, like working in, in a situation like that, you know you just get covered in mud. Your shoes, your legs, everything. And, uh, and he, here I'm supposed to be joyful. I'm on this mission. I thought we we're getting ready to go home. This is like, if it's a two-week trip, this is like the Thursday before you head home. You're like, all right, Jesus, help me. We're almost there, right? And um, the, the craziest thing happened. Maybe for three hours we were trying everything to get out, and we couldn't get out. And it, it was so annoying. And then... Um, <clears throat> Because we were desperate, we thought, well, you know, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. We might as well ask, could you help us get out? We started getting worried about what if we have to sleep here overnight? And like, what, what about our flights? All those different things, right? So we finally say, all right, let's pray. So we, my van, we decided, okay, well, let's just stand in front of this van and pray and ask God to make a way for us to get out. So we prayed. Start the car. The car moves out. We're like, that worked. <laughs> Why didn't we do that like three hours ago? Then we're like, well, that, like, let's try the, the other three. And so we did. Now, some people thought it was a little silly to try that with each different vehicle, but we did. And each time, the cars moved out. And I remember feeling um, so alive in that moment where I, I was like, Lord, would you help us? Would you move? Would you enable us to keep going so we can move on? And every single time he answered, and I remember being like, I can't believe that just happened. We're moving, we're heading out of the canyon, and I just had this thought come to me, which was the, like this, this sense of being alive, the sense of, of fire that I had within me. It wasn't supposed to be for two weeks. It was supposed to be a way of life, a way where you live committed to him and his way every single day in all the little mundane moments, all the inconvenient moments, all the moments where you're tired and cranky, that you come to him and you commit yourself to him and his way. And he shows up. And more often than not, you're going to feel like you fail and you get it wrong. But that's why I think we need to remember a third point. Remember, he's radically committed to you. Remember, he's radically committed to you. He calls you to enter into this narrow gate, but you need to know, he's radically committed to you. He doesn't just say, okay, you came in, go and do it, figure it out on your own. In John 10, 
Verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. When I was in London this last year, I met a pastor named Simon Ponsby, and he recently shared this wonderful reminder about this passage. That he said, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you've surrendered, if you've entered the gate, Jesus says, you get me. And he takes you and he holds on to you. And he won't let you go. He has an amazing grip. No one will snatch you out of my hand, he says. No one will snatch you out of my hand. I don't know who needs to hear that, but I know that this week I did no one will snatch you out of my hands. And then he says, no one will snatch you out of my Father's hands. No one will snatch you out of my Father's hands. See, there's those two hands that are holding us, God the Father and Jesus. Simon says, you think anything will prize those fingers apart to let you drop? He's got you, and nothing will drop you. Nothing will take you. Nothing you do, have done, will do, nothing anyone has done to you or will do to you can snatch you out of his hands. You are his. How can we be so confident of that? How can we be so sure that he's that committed to us? Because of the cross. The cross declares that. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it wasn't when we had everything all together, when we were following him, when we had committed ourselves to him in his way. No, before all of that. The Bible says, few people will die for a good man or woman. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God, Christ died for us. When we were still enemies, he loved us. We see the fullness of his commitment to us in that he's willingly laid down his life for us over and over and over again. You think of the different opportunities Jesus has to say, you know what? We're not going to do that. The disciples fail him over and over again. One betrays him. The other deny him. Others flee and run. People, his own people that he came to reject him. The leaders failed him. He had every justifiable reason not to remain committed to humanity. He had every reason to walk away, and instead of walking away, he chose to love his enemies, sinners, the lost and the rebellious. He chose to hold on. He chose the narrow way. See, the cross says, I am for you. I am radically for you. I love you, and I am committed to being with you. And if you will be with me, nothing will snatch you out of my hands. And so even if you feel like a failure, he comes to you and calls you to enter into that narrow gate. It's small and hard, and it feels like it costs you everything. But when you enter, you will find the fullness of life. Father in heaven, we come and we confess Now what Jesus says here feels hard. 
It feels like this hard, difficult, challenging teaching that it doesn't jive with what our culture says. And yet through, the, through all that different mist and fog, we hear an invitation, a call to life. And we see your commitment to us in Jesus. When we look at his life and what he goes through and what he does for us on our behalf, we're reminded and we take great hope in your commitment to us. And so we ask that this week you would help us to choose to enter the narrow gate, to enter through Jesus, to seek to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as children of the king. Give us courage where we lack it. Give us strength. Give us hope. We see Jesus' vision for our lives and we think it's beautiful and yet it scares us, Lord. We don't feel like we have what it takes. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. In this moment and in this week, each and every day, that every time we enter the gate, every time we commit to you and recommit to you in your way, that you would empower us by your spirit because we cannot do this apart from you. We don't want to do it apart from you. And we ask that as we do that, we would grow in knowledge and wisdom and, and faith and love for you and for others, love for our enemies as you teach us, and we pray that you would get the glory and we would experience joy, your joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion now.